KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. Hey, Taylor. How are you, how are you guys doing? Excellent. Seamus, that was a ride yesterday you had. It was a good ride, for sure. 60 miles. Good. I hope some of it was in bike lanes, uh, because that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. We have a guest on now, Lucy Maloney, who is an advocate extraordinaire from Vancouver, Canada. Lucy, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Are you back on our show today for good news or bad news? Look, I I think it's um, mixed news today. You know, we uh, had a new municipal council park board and school board voted in last October and since they've come in we've had not much progress on cycling infrastructure and we've actually gone backwards in a number of respects and this week we had a little bit of a scare when one of the ABC supermajority councillors started asking staff questions about modifying the most used bike lane in Vancouver which is the beautiful Beach Avenue bikeway to accommodate motorists wanting more convenient egress from our beautiful Stanley Park at peak times. So what we're all worried about is that they're going to modify beautiful, successful Beach Avenue bikeway to make it less safe and convenient for cyclists in order to accommodate motorists wanting to exit Stanley Park more quickly and easily at peak times. So it's the absolute typical universal struggle that we all go through about prioritising motorists' convenience over cyclists' safety. So we had a bit of a battle this week, but it looks like we're holding on for now, but we really need to send a message to ABC that if they mess with Beach Avenue bike lane, (laughs) they're really going to feel it at the ballot box. We had a huge critical mass ride on Friday night, the biggest one we've had. And the significant thing about that is that critical mass in Vancouver really over the last many years has shrunk down to a trickle, you know, with a handful of hardy regulars getting out there on the last Friday night of the month. But the last few months since we've had the Stanley Park separated bike lane ripped out with a vague promises to having a new bike lane go back in sometime in the future, we've seen that critical mass ride get bigger and bigger and bigger every month. And it would have been close to a 1,000 people on Friday night. So absolutely enormous. Well, there was a lot of stuff there, Lucy. Um, Let's go back really quick. Uh, It would be nice to be in a world where critical mass wasn't necessary, Uh, but I'm glad that people are are coming out. What is ABC? You were talking about ABC on the city council. Yeah, it stands for a better city. And going into the election, the more obviously right-wing parties got nowhere in the election. Not one single candidate was elected. ABC, I think, presented itself as bike infrastructure positive, but not big on the details. And, you know, a lot of the ABC elected officials 
speak very positively about cycling infrastructure, they're cyclists themselves, and they're quite often posting very encouraging um, posts on social media showing pedestrianised spaces and speaking positively about active transport. But that hasn't translated into any courageous political decisions yet. And what we want to see is when push comes to shove, we want them to be making some decisions that are a tiny bit brave about saying to motorists, no, it's not realistic for you to come in your private car to one of the premier destinations in BC, let alone the city of Vancouver, which is beautiful Stanley Park, which is an enormous inner urban forest park. It's unbelievable. One of the world's top urban parks. Uh, unrealistic if you think you're going to drive there on a sunny summer weekend and not sit in traffic, you know. You right. couldn't bulldoze enough forest to accommodate all the motorists that right. want to come. Come at off-peak times, avoid the park at peak times, but don't yeah. expect us to rip our bike lanes and bulldoze forests to accommodate you, you, your car. You're talking about Stanley Park in Vancouver. Stanley Park. So the jewel of Vancouver, the jewel of BC, yep. It's not an island, but it's sort of an island, right? Yeah, it's a peninsula. Yeah, and that's what distinguishes it from somewhere like Central Park in New York, which we know has very minimal motor vehicle entry now. So Stanley Park has very few entrances, and that's what motorists are whining about unfairly. At the moment, they can only exit to a very busy highway called Georgia, and it's always backed up because... You know, it's the primary way of getting through Vancouver. The problem is Georgia. The problem is not the bike lane in Stanley Park that got removed. But, you know, when there's a bike lane within 10 kilometres, motorists will always blame it for all their problems. Right. So you know that. Bike lanes get to blame for everything. Yeah, right. that's exactly right. Stanley Park, it looks like Highway 99 goes through it and then there's Lionsgate. Yeah. Does that have a bike lane on it? Yeah, so the Lionsgate now does have a bike lane on it and the causeway is the highway that goes through the middle of it. The main way to get around the outside of it is called Stanley Park Drive and until very recently we had a pandemic response separated bike lane on there and at the moment we're trying to regroup to get this bike lane back after it was recently pulled out and we're doing all sorts of mental gymnastics to try and rebrand it an emergency response lane for forest fire and ambulance response um, asterisk that cyclists can use. <laughs> it's just turned into a culture war, like so many of these things do all around the world. You can spit facts until you're blue in the face and it doesn't change the fact that our opponents simplistically say the part needs to be for everyone as if private motor vehicles are somehow more accessible than every other form of transport, including transit, that we also do not have going around Stanley Park Drive. It's tiresome and long-running, but Stanley Park is worth the fight. It's really discouraging. When you see what's going on in New York with Central Park, they are actively taking cars out of the park. Uh, And then to see this going on in Stanley Park, and Stanley Park really is a gem. I've been there many times. Mm -hmm. It also yeah. bothers me that these groups like ABC take these names, A Better City. In Los Angeles, we have a group called Fix the City. 
And really all they do is clog the city with more cars. And we've been talking a little bit lately on in bike talk about the liberal or progressive versus conservative mindset of city councils, of state assembly members and things like that. And it, it seems to me that the bicycle is a very conservative tool, yet these conservative people come into the local councils or the even the federal government and try and, and remove bike infrastructure. Seamus, yeah, you're the political think, correspondent. Yeah, I think I would, it seems like ABC is a little different than Fix the City is literally a, a group that was is uh, formed as a NIMBY organization to right. fight to fight progress. ABC sounds like more of a slate of candidates that ran on a, a specific platform that may have been slightly not necessarily disingenuous, but it's difficult. You know, they're they're trying to to govern from more what you said more in the middle or something. Yeah, I think they um, they were very attractive, unfortunately, to a lot of people on the basis of, you know, kind of a law and order platform. But active transport just wasn't a big part of the conversation in the election. And I think a lot of people just thought, oh, yeah, no, Vancouver's got that sorted. Um, and I think because the, the supermajority wanting to vote as a block, um, it's it's been difficult because the more it's, um, conservative elements within the broad church that is ABC have won out when they've been deciding how they're going to vote as a block. But the great news is that um, recently we've seen the um, ABC Park Board Commissioners vote outside their block, so split vote um, on dog parks, which I can't believe anyone would vote against dog parks. I don't know if you have the same problem with um, some irresponsible dog owners in your city, but uh, the more conservative ABC Park Board Commissioners voted against three new dog parks. So the three more progressive ABC Park Board Commissioners voted with the Vancouver Greens Park Board Commissioners to get them through. And that's hugely positive for us because the Stanley Park issue is going to come back before the Park Board in November and if the three ABC Park Board Commissioners plus the Green vote in a block, then they can outvote the three more Conservative Park Board Commissioners that in the end decided that we were going to lose our bike lane for at least this summer. So, and also Council have split recently. The ABC Councillors have split on a vote. So what I think is that the more progressive ABC councils and park board commissioners no longer want to be dragged down by the conservative leanings within the party and they want to be able to justify the decisions that they make and that's that's a real cause of hope for us as cycling advocates. Well, the takeaway from all this for me is that more advocates like yourself need to start running for those posts on city council. So uh, Bike Talk supports... Lucy for city council in Vancouver. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. I'm not sure I'm going to take you up on that, but I'm certainly going to do everything I can to help support good decisions and influence people to vote the right way in the next election. Absolutely. It, it sounds like you're doing that. If you're weighing in and advocating, if they were running on this slate without talking about um, active transport like you mentioned, then make it part of the conversation and we're happy to help. That's um, what we're doing. 
keep us posted with what's going on in Stanley Park and and come back on the show and Thanks so much for uh, all the work you've been doing in Vancouver and and for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure. I'll speak to you again soon. Thanks, Lucy. Bye, Lucy. That was great, Lucy. Thanks a lot. See ya. Well, it really worries me to see Stanley Park moving in the opposite direction. And I don't understand why bicycle infrastructure is a conservative, liberal fighting point. You know, we had Earl Earl Blumenauer on a couple of weeks ago. He's the congressman in Oregon. And he wouldn't even say full on that it is a conservative liberal break. But I, that's completely how I see it. So you do see it as being conservative? He said the bike caucus in the federal government is 60 Democrats and 15 Republicans or something like that. I'm, those aren't the exact numbers. But when I asked him about that, He said, well, because I know more Democrats, that's why there are more Democrats in the bike caucus, not that more Democrats support the bike caucus than do Republicans. I like the idea. I'd like to talk to some of the Republicans in the bike caucus. A lot of what's happening in various places is not necessarily a right versus left fight. It's also a fight within the left itself. I think that you know, in Los Angeles, even if you if you analyze sort of what battle lines are being drawn around the Healthy Streets Initiative, I, you see people on the hard left gearing up to oppose the Healthy Streets Initiative, which would implement the mobility plan. It's confounding. The Healthy Streets Initiative would give advocates a tool to force the city to implement the mobility plan in Los Angeles to put bike lanes whenever they are repaving a street. Yeah, so I define it differently than right right versus left, I do. Yeah. So you're saying that healthy streets is is an example of this where you it's not a left right, you know, republican or democrat issue. People are just all over the place. I think so. Yeah, I think that it's unclear. I think that you know, once you get down into granular policy level at at a city level, it starts to break down differently. That's my take. And I'm not saying that there isn't this right-wing pro-car, pro-truck contingency that is very toxic to the conversation overall, but it's not the largest problem in a place like Stanley Park or Griffith Park or Central Park. The fight often is within the left itself. Well, that might also be because in places like New York City, you don't really have a political right going on. If you look at different places around the world, like, you know, Berlin, this conservative city government came in and stopped all the bike lanes. I think there is something about right and left that corresponds to being pro-active transportation or pro-car. and Pro-fossil fuel burning truck, right. Yeah, there's something here in this country about freedom and the people who use freedom as a you know a shield for having guns and having unsafe vehicles and doing whatever they want and not caring about vulnerable people you know that is a conservative i i mean i don't i don't know about the the classic conservative but it's the right wing thing right now and i think being anti safe streets is kind of a right wing thing i would say that it's trumpian you know drill baby drill It's not that I disagree with calling it Trumpian, but there is this, for instance, the city council members in Culver City that are trying to get rid of all the bike lanes there. I highly doubt that they are Trump supporting 
Republicans getting elected in Culver City. They're, it's reactionary. People want the convenience of being able to drive wherever they want to go, whenever they want to go there. Okay, I'm going to go back to the Healthy Streets Initiative in Los Angeles. And one of the reasons I'm supporting it is because I believe that whether or not the initiative is ultimately successful, the campaign around it is truly important in terms of educating people about other versions of, of a way to get around a city. It doesn't just have to be cars all the time. That is the biggest hurdle. And that feeling around cars, the need for convenience is pervasive through the entire political spectrum. Well, I would say, Seamus, that in both Culver City and Vancouver, you're probably right that the city councils there are by and large leaning left, but there is a split in the left. And some people would say that the new city council in Culver City and this ABC in Vancouver are more conservative than the more progressive people that are fighting for bike infrastructure. So it was great having Lucy on, and we will follow what's going on in Stanley Park and in Central Park and in Griffith Park and a park in your city. If there's an issue going on there, we would love to hear about it and talk about it on Bike Talk. We have Transportation Alternatives Associate Director of Communications, Alexa Sledge, and she tells us about congestion pricing and the lawsuits against that from New Jersey and Staten Island. But also they have a report that's advocating for increasing registration fees with the weight of vehicles and an important street that is very dangerous that goes by a lot of schools that they're trying to get bike infrastructure on. Great. This is Alexa Sledge with Transportation Alternatives. Hi, Alexa. Hello. I was hoping you'd give us an update on everything that Transportation Alternatives is working on these days. Yeah, absolutely. We're working on a bunch of stuff over here. We're working on McGinnis Boulevard, which is a major road here in New York City. It's in Greenpoint in Brooklyn, working on making that road safer, working on getting congestion pricing over the finish line, and working on trying to do some legislative uh, fixes in city council and in the state to make our streets safer for everyone. Well, let's talk about all that. The thing that I think is in the news most right now is the congestion pricing and how finally New York City is going to have congestion pricing. But there are some hurdles left. We've come so far, but there's still some way to go. Yes, there is still some way to go. Um, There's still some steps that need to be taken by the MTA, the MTA board to get it over the finish line. And as you might have seen, there's been a recent lawsuit out of New Jersey suing New York over its plan to do congestion pricing. Everybody on social media is just making fun of New Jersey for this, but maybe there's a way that we can be empathetic to forces that are trying to stop congestion pricing. Are you able to manage that? (laughs) Absolutely. I think that when we hear commuters from New Jersey complaining about their commutes and talking about how difficult it is, that is something that I absolutely understand and can relate to. New Jersey has systematically disinvested in New Jersey transit and key public transit systems within their state. And that is making commuters commutes harder, longer, and more expensive for people in New Jersey. And so I understand why something like congestion pricing might be scary. But the answer to that isn't to end congestion pricing. It isn't to control how another state runs its tolls, particularly from New Jersey, which has some of the highest tolls in the country, but to really invest in your own public transit systems and make commuting safer and better for everyone, not just the vast, vast minority of people that choose to drive into Manhattan. It's also really upsetting because there's so many people in New Jersey that really do want congestion pricing. They see how dangerous it is to have this many cars on the streets in lower Manhattan. They see how underfunded the MTA is, and they know that 
steps and policy choices like congestion pricing will help so, so, so many people who live in New Jersey. It's really counterproductive. And Staten Island is suing too, I heard? Yes, Staten Island is also suing. Transportation alternatives, do you all take on legal fights? Uh, Not so much. That's not so much our role. We more give guidance and how we think that New York City should make choices today. It'll make congestion pricing easier when it's implemented. Because congestion pricing is going to take cars off of our streets, hopefully, and make our streets a little bit less congested, there's so many things that are recommending the city of New York do now to repair for congestion pricing in the future so that we're really making the most of all of our street space that we're reclaiming from vehicles. New York City, you're trying to make streets safer. You're trying to make the city more livable. You're trying to make it like a place that people want to be. And people are suing you to stop you from doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is congestion pricing also helps you if you drive. No one likes being trapped in hours and hours of congestion and traffic, which is what's currently happening. If you do need to drive into Manhattan, congestion pricing will make that a way better, more enjoyable, faster experience. Well, thank you for continuing to educate people about that. So on to another thing, which to me is kind of a similar thing. What's this about having the price of registering a vehicle reflect its weight? We recently launched our vehicle weight fee adjustment paper, um, which is kind of a long name, but a way of talking about it is that large vehicles have a very, very outsized impact on our streets. So when you have a major, majorly large vehicle, that's much more dangerous for people on the road and also for streets themselves. The size and weight of a vehicle is the main factor determining whether a person survives a crash. And for every 1,000 pound increase in vehicle weight, there's a 46% increase in motorist fatalities. So we know that these cars are extremely, extremely dangerous on our streets or people, but they're also causing extreme, extreme wear and tear on our roads and bridges. So the plan here is to make sure that when you're registering your vehicle, your weight is reflected in that registration fee. So every two years, um, you're gonna have to register your vehicle. That's already the law as it is now. But that fee would reflect how heavy your car is. So if you have a very, very light car, your fee would actually go down. You'd be paying much less than you are right now. But if you have an extremely oversized vehicle, that fee would be larger to show how much damage you're doing onto our streets. Because another really important thing to keep in mind is a lot of the ways that we do street maintenance up here is via the gas tax. But if you have an electric vehicle, Electric vehicles are incredibly, incredibly heavy. So they're doing tons and tons of damage onto our streets, but they're not paying that gas tax. So they're not in any way compensating for all of the damage they're doing onto our very old and in need of updating roads and bridges. The cost to society, to all of us, is not being carried by the people who choose to buy these vehicles. And exactly. Of course, not, not the companies that sell them. This would go some way towards fixing that. Absolutely. And then also... Right now, there's sort of a race to the top when it comes to vehicle size. Everyone wants to feel safe on the streets, which we completely understand. So people are buying bigger and bigger vehicles to feel safer. And we really want to put a stop to that. We don't want to encourage people buying these bigger and bigger vehicles just to feel safer. We want to incentivize buying these smaller vehicles that are less damaging to our roads, less damaging to our environment, and significantly, significantly less damaging to the pedestrians and bike riders on our roads. Do you oppose unlimited access to assault rifles? I don't know if we have an official position on that, but I would feel comfortable in saying that, yes, we oppose assault rifles. And you have a Vision Zero report? Yes. Every single quarter, we release our Vision Zero report. Our Vision Zero report analyzes that quarter's traffic fatalities compared to other quarters in that year and other years past. 
So this year, we just released our second quarter Vision Zero report, so the first six months of 2023. And we found that traffic crashes killed 112 people this year already, including a Vision Zero era record of 18 bike riders. Wow, things are getting worse on the roads there. I wouldn't say universally. There are some upsides in this Vision Zero report. We are finding that there are fewer pedestrian fatalities and fewer fatalities of older New Yorkers. But that's because we've implemented some things that we know are working and we need to implement them in more places. For example, we know that when we have protected bike lanes, they are protecting not only bike riders, but also pedestrians on our streets. And we implement things like leading pedestrian intervals, which is when the walk sign in an intersection lights up for three to seven seconds before cars have the ability to go. It makes our intersections much, much, much safer. So we know that there are infrastructure improvements that are saving lives, and it's very clear that it's saving pedestrian lives. We just need to make these in more parts of our city to make our city safer and have a better Vision Zero quarterly report next quarter and next year. Thank you. Then there's McGinnis Street. What's that about? So McGinnis Boulevard is a road in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, which is one of the furthest north neighborhoods in Brooklyn. And it is a cut through road between the Long Island Expressway and the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. So these are two highways that meet, honestly, just a few miles away from McGinnis Boulevard. It doesn't even need to exist. But this was created as a cut through by Robert Moses, who designed much of New York City's streets, did so in a famously, famously racist and backwards way. And so this street is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. There's been a crash on almost every single intersection in the past two years. And the most recent fatality is that it killed Matthew Jensen just over two years ago, who was a teacher over at PS 110. Um, He was really, really beloved by the whole community, really, really, really special to all of the children at that school. And since he was killed, there's been a lot of organizing at PS 110 and also neighboring schools in Greenpoint to make this a safer street. Because we know that 3,500 children roughly live within a quarter mile of McGinnis Boulevard. And there are 18 schools and childcare centers also within a quarter mile of McGinnis Boulevard. So this is a street that is very, very commonly frequented by children. And yet it is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Uh, the New York City Department of Transportation did outreach in the neighborhood for two years and came up with a plan that would reduce one lane of traffic in each direction and put in a protected bike lane. This would make it safer for pedestrians, bike riders, and motorists on the street, especially a street that we know is so, so, so dangerous. But unfortunately, the mayor of New York, Mayor Eric Adams, backtracked on this plan about a month ago and is no longer committing to making McGinnis Boulevard safe, which is going to leave it incredibly dangerous and most likely deadly. Wow. I'm betting that you'll win in the end. We hope so. We're definitely working with so many people in Greenpoint, so many people on the ground. Um, Make McGinnis Safe is the coalition of people um, in Greenpoint who have been working on this for years. They've been canvassing in their community for two full years. It's a ton of parents, a ton of children in the neighborhood who know that this street is dangerous and they want to make it better for their kids and for other people's kids and for the next generation of children. Um, And we're not going to stop fighting. So we know that right now we've hit (laughs) a bit of a roadblock, but we're continuing to organize. We've had lots of marches. We've had lots of press conferences, and we're not going to stop fighting until McGinnis Boulevard is a safer place to bring your children and to walk around. It seems like there should just be an automatic, you know, if there's schools on a street, then certain infrastructure should kick in to keep people from driving unsafe speeds there. Completely agree. And another major thing we've been working on for a couple of years is school streets, where you completely close certain the streets around schools down to cars um, around drop off and pick up for schools, which drastically, drastically reduces injuries and fatalities during that time, makes it a lot, lot, lot safer. 
And then there's also a bunch of schools in New York that have school streets and have used that for programming as well. So you could have a school that has a school street that's closed to cars, not only during drop off and pick up, but during recess, during gym time. And they use that space as extra sports area and stuff like that, especially in a city with so closely compact. Schools often need all of the space they can get. And it can really be a huge, huge, huge additional thing when it comes to safety, but also quality of education, experience, everything like that for kids. I mean, I know I've come across a lot of research showing the benefits of kids being able to use active transportation to get to school, being able to learn, having been active. And of course, you know, not being hit by a car. It's a huge, huge benefit to not be hit by a car. We also have a lot of bike buses that go along in New York. So a major one actually goes to PS 110 where Matthew Jensen was killed. Um, But all the kids meet up and they all bike to school together with parent chaperones. Um, And the kids really love it. And it's really cute. And it's just a healthy and safe and great way for them to start their day. All right. Transportation Alternatives, Associate Director of Communications, Alexa Sledge. Thank you for being on Bike Talk. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, this is definitely in the zeitgeist. Uh, Last week, Paul Krugman, a columnist in the New York Times, wrote a big article about car nimbyism which I just thought was a great title. And he talked about both Staten Island and New Jersey and about how they don't have some of the infrastructure that New York has. And that's why they're suing New York. It's tough if you're behind as New Jersey seems to be and you're not ready to change. It's like there almost needs to be a Band-Aid, a stopgap, you know, give them some time to implement some bike lanes or just do it the hard way and force them to do it quickly. I think the hard way forced them to do it quickly, rip the Band-Aid off. You could get a bad reaction to that, though. You never know. Well, I guess we'll find out because congestion pricing is is supposed to start in New York next year in 2024. I'm here for it, for sure. I'm, I'm down for it. Yeah. So this next interview is about truck side guards, which is something probably most people, it's not on their radar, but the League of American Bicyclists has been fighting really hard for it. And there's a frontline documentary about it. And... The U.S. Department of Transportation is in league with the trucking industry in obstructing the calls for side guards for trucks, which we're, we're going to learn all about in this interview. This is the second or third time we've actually talked about this now on the show. We had Karen Whitaker from the league on a couple of weeks ago, and she talked about it. And then, of course, there was the tragic crash that could have been prevented by a truck side guard on the U.S. diplomat in Washington, D.C., when she just returned from a war zone. So this is something that's overdue. Here's Karen Whitaker again with Stephen Bingham and Alex Epstein. We have three great guests on a very important topic. The topic is truck side guards and why we don't have them when we should have them. And we have Stephen Bingham, whose daughter was killed by a truck when she was on her bike back in 2009. 2009. And we have Karen Whitaker, Deputy Executive Director of the League of American Bicyclists, who's been fighting in a very determined and focused way on this issue. And we have Alex Epstein, who's with the Somerville Alliance for Safe Streets in Eastern Massachusetts. So welcome to Bike Talk, everybody. Thank you for inviting us. I guess, why not start with you, Stephen? Can you tell your story? Yeah. um, My daughter graduated from college in May 2009. She moved to Cleveland to be near her best friend. I got a VISTA job in Cleveland and all of the 
people that she knew in Cleveland only used bikes. Most of them didn't even have driver's licenses. <clears throat> and so she began, she knew how to bike and she biked to work every day. And on September 15, uh, she, she was at an intersection and headed out in a box truck, a single unit truck, um, unannounced, uh, suddenly swerved to make a right-hand turn right into her path. She was going straight. She was 10 blocks away from her job. And uh, the truck didn't have any side guards. And um, what happened to her and happens to others is she got slammed to the ground. And then as the truck continued to turn right, uh, it basically the 25,000 pounds of the truck, uh, the wheels rolled over her and she was killed instantly. So she wasn't killed by the crash itself, the initial crash, the lack of side guards is what caused her to be killed. Uh, for years afterwards, I was not really aware of this issue. The driver had been under the influence of marijuana and there were lots of other issues. He was convicted and sent to prison for reckless vehicular homicide, but at some point, I came in touch with a group of people who had lost their children in car crashes where the car, the entire car, went underneath these big rig trucks and the entire roof of the car just get sheared off and all of the protections. In some cases, the seatbelts don't even activate because the pressure is at the level of the head. So it shears off the roof and the windshield and everything else. And they have been battling for years beside guards. Uh, and I have joined that battle. I've been also very active in Families for Safe Streets, which is a national organization uh, that we say none of us wanted to have to belong to, but it's um, families of people who were killed on the streets or people who were seriously injured. So I've been an activist all my life. And after my wife and I lost Sylvia, I sort of redirected my advocacy energy to dealing with why is it that there aren't side guards. We go to France every year, my wife is French, and every truck in Europe has had side guards, small trucks, big trucks. Uh, they've had them for 30 years. And I, I sort of began to wonder why. And uh, so I've been in the struggle now for a number of years. Thank you, Stephen. And that there's our question. They have them in Europe. Why not here, Karen? I'd say, unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, safety solutions that we see in Europe that we don't see in the U.S., and side-on-a-ride guards are one of them. To put it in context, 4% of registered vehicles on the roads right now are these large trucks, but they're responsible for 11% of bicyclist fatalities. 
And in some areas uh, in New York City, it's about it's over 30 percent of bicyclist fatalities in the state of Massachusetts. Crashes with large trucks are responsible for about more than 40 percent of bicyclist fatalities. You know, I was at an event with uh, Secretary Buttigieg recently, and he said that a lot of the solutions to safety, they're simple solutions, but just because they're simple, they're not easy. And I think that's what we're seeing with this. It's the getting the political will to require side guards um, has just been really hard. And why is it so hard? Who cares enough to oppose them? The trucking industry the people that would have to pay to install side guards on their vehicles. There's actually not just the trucking itself industry, but the trailer industry, which is a somewhat Mm. separate industry. And one of the things that we've learned is they actually know how to do this. They've created their own designs in anticipation of being required to do it. Uh, We have the solutions already. The trailer industry has the solutions. They know how to do it. And what they've been saying economically makes a certain amount of sense is once the government requires all of us to do it, then we'll do it. But we're not going to be the first ones to step out um, because, and they claim it's going to cost them these unbelievable billions and billions of dollars. Uh, Sadly and outrageously, they falsify the statistics, both as to how much it would cost and also the number of lives saved. Uh, one of the things you may not realize, the government puts a dollar figure on every life when they evaluate a regulation. And they've just recently raised that value in the Department of Transportation from 11 to $12 million. And they just do this back of the envelope kind of calculation that um, they claim Side guards will only save 17 lives a year, which is beyond outrageous. And I can we can talk about that later. Maybe Alex uh, can mention that. But uh, then they say the cost is like uh, umpteen billions of dollars, and they do the division of life saved and billions of dollars, and it's more than 12 million. So we can't do it, which is their current position. Alex, you want to just again talk about what side guard a side guard is? Uh, side guards are, are physical barriers installed on the sides beneath the truck from the front axle to the back axle or on a trailer from the wheels going forward to where it attaches to the to the tractor that pulls the trailer. And uh, as a physical barrier, it can uh, be highly effective in preventing a person biking or walking from falling underneath, from getting swept underneath and and being crushed by the wheels and back as as we heard earlier. Because it's not the first impact that kills people, especially bicyclists, when when they crash with the truck, it's going under. That's what a side guard is. Side guard can mean either that kind of barrier that stops a person walking or biking from going under and beefier versions of that, known as side underride guards, can do the same for for keeping uh, cars from going under, or motorcyclists from going under, who are also exposed. So it's really kind of a spectrum, and we think of them all as side guards. Uh, another term, by the way, is lateral protection device. That's usually used for uh, the more lightweight side guards that that would keep a person on a on a bike or a person walking from falling under the truck. So LPD, you might see the term. 
So there's about a dozen cities that have required those around the country through contracting, through other means and their own fleets. And uh, at this point, two different states, uh, Massachusetts and D.C. Uh, as far as numbers, yes. I mean, as Steve was saying, there's when the government decides whether it's worth saving people's lives, they put a dollar figure on it called the value of, of a statistical life or VSL. And that's about $12 million right now. That all sounds maybe reasonable. Yeah, okay, okay. You know, maybe maybe we're not worth a single life isn't worth infinite dollars to the government. But once you do put a price tag on that on, on a person's head, the game becomes if the government supports doing something, it'll try to maximize the benefits and minimize the costs and make it appear that the dollar per life saved is low. Uh, below 12 million. If it if it doesn't, you know, if it's picking winners and losers and decides side guards are a loser, you can imagine uh, the opposite. And that's sort of what we're seeing. We're seeing uh, some exorbitantly high estimates here, you know, north of $100 million of life saved. And that's where uh, it becomes important to really check assumptions and see, you know, does this analysis hold water? The government has something called a totality analyst reporting system which collects data from the states as to fatal crashes. And it's filled out, completed by state police. And one of the things we've learned in our advocacy is it is notoriously underestimating the number of fatal crashes. We actually did our group, which is called Team Underwrite, specifically analyzed 47 crashes where we had photographs and other things to indisputably prove that the underwrite had occurred. And none of them, uh, or maybe two of them, showed up in the FARS database. And one of the reasons for that is that only 17 states even have a checkbox on police crash reporting forms to indicate that the crash involved an underwrite. And many police don't even know what an underwrite is. So you have the government with its billions of dollars relying on entirely false information, knowingly so. They know that it's wildly inaccurate and yet they rely on it anyway. So why we're talking about this now is because under the infrastructure bill, it required USDOT to uh, complete research on these side guards to see if it was worth creating a regulation to require them. And as Alex and Stephen just said, when they did the cost benefit to see if it was worth it, they really undercounted the number of lives it would save and gave fairly high estimates for what it would cost uh, trailers, trailer owners and truck owners to put these um, on the vehicle. And one of the reasons that this cost benefit is so out of whack is that they didn't even look or consider any of the fatalities of vulnerable road users, not pedestrians, not bicyclists, uh, not motorcyclists in that process. There's a lot of other things they didn't look at as well. And all of those things combined led to what we believe was a faulty cost benefit, which now 
the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is saying, oh, well, it's not worth a regulation. Well, are you at the League of American Bicyclists? Are you the only ones fighting for this? Are there other groups trying to rectify this? There's a lot of groups working on this. I would say led by people like Stephen, who've lost someone in their family to a truck crash. We see a lot of people working on that. What we're doing at the League, you know, we've been talking to USDOT about this. And one of the things they've said to me is, okay, who else is is working with you on this? So right now we're trying to do a sign-on letter where we're trying to get organizations, bike clubs to all sign on to a letter together to say, you need to go back and redo this cost-benefit analysis. There is evidence that requiring side guards is worth the cost. One of the real benefits of the advocacy efforts in this area has been bringing bicycle advocates and pedestrian advocates together. Uh, America Walks, which has also state affiliations. We have California Walks and San Francisco Walks at the local level. And they've been an active player because uh, uh, vulnerable road users, probably the most vulnerable are pedestrians and cyclists. And it's to me, it's been a real shot in the arm and exciting to see pedestrian and bike advocates working together so well on a, on a single issue. Well, it sounds like this type of incident where people are pulled under a truck and crushed by the wheels in cars or on bikes or just walking, there's no way of adequately recording it in the first place. So their data is just always going to be insufficient. And if they don't know this, are you able to bring it to their attention? There is an organization that's working specifically on that issue called cyclistvideoevidence.com. They have a website, uh, Craig Davis, and it's worth going to. And also, I think on the LEAPS site, there's uh, somebody on a bike who had a camera and recorded someone else being sucked under a truck that was passing it, which is something a lot of people don't realize can happen. There's a wind vortex that happens around the truck. And on a bicycle, you can actually lose control if a big 18-wheeler goes by you and gets sucked underneath. And one of the things that Cyclist Video Evidence has been trying to do with a little bit of success, but not much, is getting police to accept as evidence a video of someone driving recklessly, uh, buzzing a cyclist too close, things like that. You know, fortunately, it's not a good word, but in my daughter's case, when she was killed, they were, it was in urban Cleveland at 21st and Prospect near the State University, and there were a number of witnesses. But that is, as you say, that's rare that anyone sees any of this. And the truck drivers sometimes don't even see it. One of the people I work with, his son was dragged in his car for a half a mile along a freeway and the truck didn't even realize anything was wrong until he saw flames uh, shooting out, uh, looking in his rearview mirror. And uh, 
the son, needless to say, was burned to death. You know, the first time I saw this happen, I hadn't been able to visualize what we're talking about. To see it is really to just have your mind changed about this. You all are raising awareness. Is it going to be a long struggle to do this? Are we on the verge of seeing a change in the regulations? Well, it's an exciting time because it's more interest in this issue than there's ever been. And your listeners really, I assume they're all cyclists, so they really should get involved working with their uh, local congressional offices to get them on board. The League has uh, some good information on their website, the League of American Bicyclists, and there's an incredible documentary that was just on national TV on Frontline called America's Dangerous Trucks. And if listeners just Google that, you will learn about the issue and also the outrage that it's taken so long. And what uh, Frontline focused on is the essential control that the trucking industry has over NHTSA which goes far beyond just side guards. Um, it has to do with the new car assessment program that Karen referred to. And uh, they essentially, in one case that was highlighted in that documentary, they were given an advanced review of a report that they were about to publish and they substantially changed the report at the request of the trucking industry. It's just an example of how industry has really taken control over NHTSA. It's similar to pharmaceutical control over much of what the Food and Drug Administration does. And so that's been part of our battle. That was one of the first things I noticed when I started looking into this is that there was, I don't know, is the word collusion too strong for the National Highway? <laughs> It's just uh, what it is. And the trucking industry? Capture is the uh, political science term. The agency has been captured? Right. Yeah, you have industry. a lot of lower level people that worked in the trucking industry, and then they come and work for the government, and they influence from the inside. So even though Buttigieg has made some pretty great statements about solving a lot of problems, and he's named a couple of high level people that are good to work with them, but the real work gets done by the civil servants who don't get changed when there's a change in administration, and they've just been blocking things. Yeah. I think a key point here, as, as Steve raises, is it's not even about data at the end of the day. I think we all know, and this is why the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety and Consumer Reports and National Transportation Safety Board are all speaking with with one voice that the data is there that side guards are going to save more than enough lives to justify themselves to be mandated it's it's really about ultimately a question of politics and policy and i think that's where steve's suggestion for for people who bike to get involved with their congressional representatives is is a really good piece of advice because at the end of the day, it's not so much the objective data, it's how the, the government chooses to either cast that data positively or negatively 
to either support what it thinks is a winner or sink what it thinks is a loser. And that's where some of these other channels come into play. So, and I'm a data person, so I believe in data, but I've seen the limits of where that, that line of reasoning stops. And so now I think that brings us back to the need for some political will. And I would say for any listeners who are interested in getting involved, please join us at the League of American Bicyclists. If you go to bikeleague.org, you can find some more on this issue, or you can reach out to me directly at C-A-R-O-N at bikeleague.org. Karen just does astonishingly good work at the federal level with legislators, and they've had a lot of successes over the years, but this one is a real hard nut to crack. Keep up the good work, Karen, at the League of American Bicyclists, and all of you, Alex and Stephen. Thank you for your work all these years, and thank you for being on Bike Talk. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's really interesting now when you drive on the highway or even on surface streets, you, one, see trucks with these side guards. And you see some trucks without the side guards. It looks to me like an easy fix. I know it's not free, but I'm starting to notice trucks with side guards. It's definitely not free. I think they're about $3,000 a piece. And I, I saw something that it's like like $40 billion almost to, on something like 12 million trailers or something like that. Going back to is this conservative versus liberal or left versus right? It's that when you get into the trucking lobby, you're dealing not only with corporations like Amazon or whatever, but you're dealing with the Teamsters. You're dealing with hard left organizations that are worried about the cost on their drivers who have these trailers. You know, these are this is a large cost for their membership. Going back to the left versus right, it's not it doesn't just break down neatly. Right. And, and this is a case though of truth not really being able to get out. I like the fact that we're discussing things that are in the zeitgeist, that are being talked about in the New York Times, that are being talked about elsewhere, that are important issues for road safety for everybody. Definitely. Yeah. Now, a slice of life from a recent event in the Mattapan neighborhood of Boston, Massachusetts, by MassBike co-host Galen Moot. All right, I'm here with Vivian. Vivian, can you introduce yourself and let us know what we're doing here? So hi, I'm Vivian Morris. Uh, I'm a chair and founder of Mattapan Food and Fitness Coalition, and we're here today celebrating uh, and encouraging more people, especially from the Mattapan and related communities, to bike and bike safely. I love it. So you are one of the founding members of the Food and Fitness, and we've been doing this, what, this is the 12th year, is that right? Exactly. So how has it changed over the years? What have you seen develop um, in over a decade? Well, one of the really wonderful things is that Chevelle Olivier, who is our executive director, when we started, she was a teenager with us. And we said to the teenagers who were part of our group, wouldn't you all like to learn to bike? And they said, yeah, let's do a a big event and we'll invite youth and other people over and um, give people bikes to use for the day. And they started Matterpan on Wheels. And here we are. I love it. So um, what is some highlights of uh, of Matterpan on Wheels for you personally? (laughs) Well, 
the goal has been not only to teach and encourage people to learn to bike, but to make our community a safe place for bikers. And the encouragement and the advocacy that young people as well as people of all ages have done uh, because we've been inspired by Mattapan on Wheels to push the city and the state and others to make our community a safe place for bikers. I love it. I love it. So last question for you. Where do you see this being 12 years from now? That's a really good question. Um, Clearly, we will be growing. Hopefully, the streets will be safer so that we'll have many more options for bikers uh, and we'll see more people of all ages safely biking. I love it. I love it. Anything else you want to add about Mattapan or the food and fitness or the ride? Well, this is one of many projects of Mattapan Food and Fitness Coalition. It's called Food and Fitness because we want to make people's lives healthier, uh, greater access to healthy food. So our farmer's market, uh, which is in its 18th year, started last Saturday. So every Saturday through the end of October, come to Mattapan Square and see healthy, affordable food. I love it. Thank you so much for the work. Thank you. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around. Bye.